All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day, another chance to gather together as your family and bring you glory, to be united in the faith, and to stand against the ways of the world. Father, we just thank you for these blessings that we sometimes take for granted, this beautiful church and your precious word so available to us. And we also thank you for your Holy Spirit who is always so patient with us and guiding us. Father, we also pray right now for those who are sick in our congregation, who are struggling. You know their every need, you know their every pain. We ask that you comfort them as only you can. And Father, most of all, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for even sending him at all on our behalf to take our place in judgment. We are eternally grateful. Father, please bless this message. Guide us by your Spirit. Help us get out of the way and listen in humility. Show us what we need to know today. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Okay, the Lord is our conf confidence, part three. Uh, before I dive into my notes, I was just in the back reviewing, and uh, Pastor has a bunch of different books on his shelves back there, uh, many from years ago. And I just came across this little booklet, Tis the Gift to be Simple. And it's appropriate how small and few pages this is. So I'm just going to read it for you. It's just a little poem, and it really fits in with our title, The Lord is Our Confidence, and it fits in with fear of the Lord and realizing our proper perspective and place before him. It says, "'Tis the gift to be simple, "'tis the gift to be free, "'tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. "'And when we find ourselves in the place just right, "'twill be in the valley of love and delight. "'When true simplicity is gained to bow and to bend, we shouldn't be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. Isn't that cool? Simplicity, <laughs> knowing our place. Uh, we're largely out of place in our own souls, how we think of ourselves too highly, and that's going to come up tonight as well. But... Hopefully that gets us off on the right foot. Again, the Lord is our confidence, part three. And, you know, the message is that He, the very person of the Lord, Jesus Christ, He is and should be our very confidence. Um, it's not even the doctrines per se. It's getting to know His person. And, and His unchangeable, beautiful, perfect person is what should be our confidence as we walk. And as from recent lessons, he just is. Isn't it comforting to know that he never changes? Like there's, there should be no worries and doubts in our soul. Our confidence in him should never be shaken because he never changes. It's not like your best friend even who tries his best to be a good friend, but 
fails and falls at times. It's not like that. He never, ever changes. So what do we have? We have an unshakable confidence. And that's why the Lord's called the rock, an immovable rock. So hopefully you remember this slide on the board from uh, a few weeks ago regarding God's whole person. God's sovereignty, like every other facet of his character, never functions in the absence of grace. He never drops one part of his character while operating in another. He is who he is. And that's something we can rest on. He is who he is. And that's where our confidence comes from. We went to Exodus 3 and Exodus 33 at the time. But the point is that we can trust in his person because he's perfect in every way. We received some personal encouragement from Jesus this past week in John 14.1. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. In other words, live without fear in your life. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. It doesn't get much simpler than that. You know, he, he could say that to a five-year-old, and the five-year-old would get it, probably better than we get it. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me. Things could be going haywire. Things could be spinning out of control, and it could seem like you're doomed in a certain area of your life. But God, the great thing about, you know, just the all-powerful God we have, he could literally change our lives on a dime like this. And everything could be different. So if that's true, how can we not trust him and just fall back on his wisdom and timing? So Jesus is saying, trust me. Has he gone through all he went through for nothing? If he did the greater for us on the cross, can't he do the lesser? Can't he save us from our little piddly situation compared to his? Pastor mentioned an idea to consider on Sunday on the board. Let's call it knowing God. He said, to the degree we behold God's holiness, to that same degree our confidence soars. And that's something to ponder. I mean, that's a spiritual point there uh, that you have to take time to consider. Or you won't really see it because it's really kind of opposite of how we would think. To the degree we behold God's holiness, to that same degree our confidence soars. We might say the more we behold him and all of his awesomeness, the more we will rely on him and be set free. He will personally, intimately be our very confidence in life. That's what he wants for us. He wants that close personal relationship that, honestly, we're probably, we're reluctant to give, <clears throat> at least in the flesh. We're reluctant to give, to give all of us, to give in totally, to, as the poem said, you know, go down to where we ought to be. We're reluctant to do that. But when we do and as we do, progressively, he will personally and intimately be our very confidence in life. We won't be shaken. And the devil's world, by the way, will not even be able to penetrate it. That peace, 
that he grants us. And as we behold him, we mustn't become familiar with him. This came up a couple weeks ago as well. But I was thinking about it. In a way, we can't, we can't ever become familiar with him because we can never know him fully in this life. How do you become familiar with someone that you don't really know fully? I mean, we do so anyway because we're stupid, right? Because we fall into traps of the sin nature. But technically speaking, you can't become familiar with him because you don't know him. Not fully. There's always, always mystery in God. And even in heaven, when we see him, we're going to be constantly learning about him as a person. So we need to shift our perspective. But that comes from beholding God's holiness. Beholding God's holiness. We're left with nothing but awe if we do that. The problem is we don't do it. We don't step back. We don't step back and consider that he made the heavens and the earth with the breath of his mouth. And we, we know that academically in the Bible, but do you sit outside and consider that he decided to blow out wind, for example, out of his mouth, or he spoke, and everything just created out of nothing? Like, why don't we sit back and behold his holiness, behold all of who he is like that? goes back to quiet time again, I guess. This world so easily just wraps us up and, you know, gets us spinning like a top. And we have to guard our quiet time. Or we're just going to fall into the, the cycle and, and have more and more difficulty getting out of it. And enjoying who he is. Enjoying beholding his holiness, for example. So we can never figure God out. He's a mystery in our souls, always, as it should be. I mean, who do we think we are to think that we have God figured out? Romans 12, 3 says, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, just as we heard from our poem to begin with. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. I would venture to say even the most mature Christian, the most mature believer, thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think. We are not in the valley where we should be, proper place before God. And that's where we find the love and the the delight and the peace with God. So this fear of the Lord, just that we can never fully get to know him, and that he's infinitely smarter and greater than us, infinitely. No matter how smart we think we're getting, no matter how sophomoric we could be acting or thinking, he's infinitely smarter and greater than us. So we need to stop trying to figure God out um, and like nail him down, put him, you know, think we got him under our thumb. You know, we can't. And, and that's to our own detriment if we do that. We wipe out our um, childlike faith and we wipe out our ability to see him for who he wants us to see him as in all of his awesomeness. So the sooner we admit that and we stand in awe of God, the sooner God will be our confidence, even greater. We saw a couple quotes from 
A.W. Tozer from the Knowledge of the Holy. Let's just review these. First, he said, love and faith are at home in the mystery of the Godhead. Let reason kneel in reverence outside. That's a cool perspective. Love and faith are at home in the mystery of the Godhead. Let reason kneel in reverence outside. We control freaks need to stop overanalyzing and trying to prove everything. How about instead seeking the proof of our faith, as Peter said, instead of trying to prove everything scientifically or something? Love and faith can never be pinpointed. They're mysteries. They're far beyond the logic of man. And only faith can access God's love, for example. It's not an academic issue. These are supernatural and infinite qualities of God and from God. And we mustn't rely on our own intellect or we'll actually take away our confidence in the Lord. Tozer goes on to say, A disciple may compare Scripture with Scripture until he has discovered the true meaning of the text. But right there, his authority ends. He must never sit in judgment upon what is written. Interesting perspective, isn't it? How many times have you read the Bible over the years and read something and come to a conclusion and in a way kind of cast your judgment on that verse? Or maybe assumed a little too strongly that you've got it all figured out. Where instead we should just take it in. He says he dare not bring the meaning of the word before the bar of his reason. In other words, we have no right to measure what we discover in God's word against our own understanding. Does it fit into our own understanding? If it does, okay, I'll accept it. But if not, eh, I'm not comfortable with that. So I'm not going to accept it by faith. That's what the flesh is prodding us to do. But we have no right to measure what we discover in God's word against our own understanding. We need to, like, you know, let our own understanding go to the wind and be like, show me how you want me to see this thing. But we're arrogant, as is going to come up in our lesson. We are to get out of the way and accept what we learn by faith. And that's it. We are to get out of the way and accept what we learn by faith. We aren't to rationalize it so it fits into our own comfort zone. And as we've learned over the years, we're not to speculate to add pieces to the puzzle or to make the puzzle pieces fit. We're not to speculate. We're to have the faith of a child say we don't know any better and receive what he gives us. And then Toza went on to say, he dare not commend or condemn the word as reasonable or unreasonable, scientific or unscientific. After the meaning is discovered, that meaning judges him. Never does he judge it. I love that last part. After the meaning is discovered, that meaning judges him. Never does he judge it. It reminds me of Hebrews 4. The Word of God, you know, judges our very thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
we don't have the right or the ability to judge Scripture from our own understanding. To judge God's ways and see if they fit in with us. You know, we might ask ourselves this question. Are we placing our confidence in our own analysis? In our own conclusions about the Word? Are we placing our confidence in that? Or are we placing our confidence in Him? In, in who He reveals Himself to be? And that's it. Keeping it by faith alone. We must humbly sit back and let the Word judge us. With the faith of a child, we must receive what is revealed to us and walk in it to the pleasure of our Heavenly Father. But as came out on Sunday, sin has deceived all of us into accepting lies and even defending them and our own faulty way of life. It's astonishing, really. It's shocking what sin does, what sin is able to accomplish in us because we let it. On the board, this came up on Sunday. It's strange, isn't it? It's strange to think that we defend those things in our lives that stand opposed to God's will, and yet we do so vehemently. The Spirit asked us to dwell on this point on Sunday. It's strange to think that we defend those things in our lives that stand opposed to God's will, and yet we do so vehemently. The Spirit asked us to ask ourselves, not if, but where we do this very thing in our own lives. Because we all do it, if we're honest. Where do we do this? Where, Where do we defend things that might not be so godly? I was thinking during Sunday's lesson, the flesh is strange. Just like pride is strange. It makes us do some strange and stupid things. If we're not the one in the situation and someone else is doing it, we can see how stupid and strange it is, right? But when we're the one doing it, we rationalize it so that we don't even see how stupid we look or how how foolish we're thinking in the moment. The flesh is just strange, and that's because pride is strange. Usually the source of defensiveness, as mentioned on the board, is pride. We don't like to admit when we're wrong. And we don't like to admit when we're weak. We don't like to even admit we can be overtaken by anything. That's where we're saying, you know, to ourselves or to others, nah, I got it under control. That thing that I'm flirting with in the world, I got it under control. That's pride, like butting its nose and saying, I don't want to change. And I'll do it at my own power. Thank you. I'll figure it out. Pride and arrogance makes us do stupid things all because of the stubbornness of pride. So the Spirit wants me to share an example with you that came up in men's Bible study uh, last week, which Deacon Johnson runs faithfully every other Wednesday evening. And we just started on Moses and Pharaoh and the ten plagues. We recently noted a couple examples of pure stupidity in the face of suffering that actually brought more suffering on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. 
And it led us to ask the question in the Bible study, why? Remember I just talked about if you're not the one in the situation, you could see it clearly, right? Why? It doesn't make any sense that they just did that thing or said that thing. It's like utter foolishness. There's no benefit for them. It's actually a hurt to them. Why did they do that? Our conclusion was pride caused it. Pride caused self-induced pain and suffering. So let me share with you what the scripture gave us. Uh, Go to Exodus 8, verse 1. Exodus 8, verse 1. Why is it so strange? Why do we do that strange thing on the board to actually defend ungodliness? Is the answer simply pride? Exodus 8, 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, Behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers over the streams and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now look at verse 7. The magicians, these were the the Egyptian magicians who were trying to match Aaron to show their power. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Does that make any sense? That's what we were talking about for like 10 minutes in the Bible study. Why did they do that? Why would they do it to their own detriment? So there's already frogs covering the land, even in, the, even in your eating bowls, your kneading bowls and all that. And your own magicians, who are supposed to be on your side, caused more frogs to come up on the land. Why did they do that? Did they just refuse in pride to be shown up by the Lord, to be shown up by Aaron and Moses? That was the only conclusion we could come to. That's the strangeness of the flesh. And pride makes us do strange things. Look at verse 8. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. I love that. That was noted too, how humble Moses is. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses and that they be left only in the Nile? Then he, Pharaoh, said, Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I mean, if you were sitting next to Pharaoh, wouldn't you be like, Can you tell them now? Can you tell them now to get rid of these things? Tomorrow. Why did Pharaoh say tomorrow? Again, all we could come up with was pride. 
it's almost like a little kid saying, oh, I, I can bear this punishment a little longer, you know, volunteering to stay in his punishment out of stubbornness. That's the flesh. That's how strange the flesh is. And again, we go on. Uh, the Pharaoh said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no other like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out, uh, died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So there we see a little bit more pride, which stupidly led to a bunch more plagues. So, we don't necessarily have a direct correlation here to our lives as believers, but the question must be asked, are we acting like stubborn, arrogant children, unwilling to bow down our lives to conform to God's wisdom? Remember our poem in the beginning? Like when we bow, we're actually set free. Are we acting like stubborn, arrogant children, unwilling to bow down our lives to conform to God's wisdom? Yep, I could say, yeah, I do. I could say, that's me. Even though I don't always see it right away, eventually he shows me another area that I've been arrogant in or stubborn in or unwilling to bow in. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we holding on to and why? Why is the bigger question that came up in my mind on Sunday. So we spent a lot of time on fear lately and how giving in to the wrong fear destroys our confidence that God wants us to possess. We saw on Sunday on the board misdirected fear. God uses godly fear for good while the kingdom of darkness uses a counterfeit version for evil. We are to resist such things, to rebuke fear in our lives, a.k.a. allow the Word and the Spirit to shine light into darkness. To even identify our fears in the first place, we have to go to the light of the Word in humility to reveal the truth about what's going on in our souls. Sometimes we just don't want to know, do we? what's really going on in our souls. But as we're going to see in a minute, the problem is we don't trust God that He's out for our own good, ultimately. The Word can show us what we are fearing and why we are fearing it, if we're open. If we're open. Is it painful? Yep. Quite often it's quite painful. But it's only because, you know, we're holding on to something ugly. And how many times when you finally let go, are you relieved? Maybe even pain-free in that area. 
The Word can show us what we are fearing and why we are fearing it if we are open. That's the light of the truth that He wants to come out in our very own spiritual lives, in our very own souls. This is very personal. This is not about academia. This is about what are you holding on to in your soul that is making you a prisoner, that is causing you angst and pain and suffering in your spirit. So we might call this exposing fears. The word shines into the dark parts of our souls. And we must believe the purpose is not to take things away from us and make us suffer. That right there is an ungodly fear. We must believe the purpose is not to take things away from us and make us suffer. That's what our flesh thinks. This is going to be painful again. I don't want to do without this thing. It gives me this, you know, it appeases me. It gives me pleasure for a season. I don't want to do without this thing. But we must trust God that this is all, this light is shining into the darkness to set us free from bondage. As our dear pastor said on Sunday, the only way we will ever be delivered is to subject ourselves to holy examination. Do we really want God's way for our lives? Are we willing to submit to Him and His wisdom in our lives? This came up on Sunday too. How many times have we been wrong in the past? And why is it that we think we're not wrong now or in the future? That's the flesh, right? Convincing us that there's nothing else that needs to be fixed. But if we're humble, we'll be like, all right, Lord, keep showing me. I want to be sanctified to your glory. I want to please you. By the end of my life, I want to be at that place you want me to be at. But we have to trust him. He calls us to trust him. We have to trust his word and what his spirit is leading us to do individually. It's for our own good and our own freedom. On the board, extinguishing fear. Our job is to show up while it's the Word and the Spirit's job to complete its evaluation. Ungodly fear must be revealed for what it is by means of the light, for light extinguishes darkness. So here's God trying to get rid of our fears, and here we are holding on to our fears. Turn again to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Again, on the board, extinguishing fear. Our job is to show up by faith. While it's the Word and the Spirit's job to complete its evaluation, ungodly fear must be revealed for what it is by means of the light. For light extinguishes darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Christ. We could spend months on that verse. But notice light is supposed to remove the darkness from our own hearts. The things we hold on to that are bringing us down. There are things in our hearts that need to be exposed. Things we are clinging to out of pride or even out of fear or both. Remember, pride is out of insecurity. We only get proud and defensive because we're insecure. God's trying to free us from these chains, these things we're clinging to that are just making us suffer. We can only rebuke our fears if we're willing to let the Word work in us and shine light on our fears in the first place. So willingness and not pride is a key to experiencing this freedom. God's got an awesome plan for us. Problem is, we don't believe it, or we're satisfied with where we are because we don't want to change anymore. But on the board, John 8, 12, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Then he says, he who follows me will not walk in darkness. In other words, he who follows me will have the light lighting his path will have the light shining in his heart to reveal things that need to be seen. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that includes following his spirit, who graciously nudges us each day. If we follow him, following his commands, we won't listen to deceit and walk in darkness. It's one or the other. You know, if, again, if light shines into a dark room, the darkness is gone, right? They can't coexist. That's the beauty of it. So we saw also on Sunday about walking in the light. Standing or walking in the light means we cannot be fooled or deceived by darkness. When we're in the light, we cannot be fooled or deceived by darkness. The only time we're vulnerable is when we're not in the light, when we step out of the light we step into our own schemes. Turn again to Ephesians 5, 6. Ephesians 5, 6. We're going to read through this passage kind of quickly. We've been through this a few times. But we're also going to go a little bit further to see where it ends right on our subject. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. 
So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Fear is like our, uh, our uh, fail-safe. Fear of God, that is. It's like our fail-safe. The fear of the Lord can save our souls from so much pain. Just as we learned weeks ago that gratitude protects us, so does fear of the Lord. It protects us. Even with how we treat one another in verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. If we rightly fear the Lord, we will walk in His ways. And guess what? We'll be happy for it. All the garbage, all the distractions that, that ends up wearing us down, those are all going to be lifted. And we're going to be happy just being alone with the Lord. We have to trust that's the case, though. Again, walking in the light, standing Walking in the light means we cannot be fooled or deceived by darkness. That's what we have to look forward to in our own souls. Um, a place of brightness and clarity. There's nothing quite like it when you, um, you know, finally see the light in a certain area of your life. You're set free, you have peace, and you have more confidence in Him. So we go back to a primitive, a vital characteristic to true freedom and having the Lord be our confidence. What is that primitive? It's fear of the Lord. It's wise to fear the Lord. We've seen when Solomon lays out the structural outline of his wisdom and Proverbs, his conclusions are founded and understood implicitly as a function of fearing the Lord. In other words, wisdom can't come without fearing the Lord. The more we fear the Lord, the more confidence we're going to have. Another way to put it, the more we see His greatness, the more we are confident. Because we know this great one is for us and not against us, and he can't change. The more we see his greatness, the more confident we are. <clears throat> but we can't truly know him without having fear of the Lord. This also came out on Sunday, and I put it on the board for you. Let's just call it fruit in the soul. Do you see the stark difference between the fruit of ungodly fear... I'm sorry, fruit of godly fear, confidence and conviction that we get from that, and the fruit of ungodly fear, insecurity, anxiety, etc. Hopefully you do see that in your own lives too. And if not, pray about it. Ask God to help you see it. Do you see the stark difference between the fruit of godly fear and the fruit of ungodly fear? So we're going to read a little bit more about the fear of the Lord and how it is the beginning 
of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. Without it, we won't discover His wisdom in our lives. We'll be running on empty. We'll have our own wisdom. Even if we read the Bible, we'll have our own wisdom, not His wisdom. The Spirit brought out on Thursday that this is a practical thing. This directly affects our life and our happiness. And also, as came out on Sunday, something we don't really want to hear, but the degree of our personal misery is directly related to the degree that we don't fear the Lord. So if we have any personal misery, that can be attributed to not fearing the Lord. So we're obviously all on that boat, unless you're greater than thou. We've all got a problem. We've all got um, anxieties, let's say, things that bother us, things that we fear. And that comes from a lack of fear of the Lord. And the reason it has to be that way is if we feared the Lord perfectly, we would never fear anything else. We'd have perfect peace. The Lord would be our confidence, like fully, all the time. That's how we know that's our problem, that we don't fear the Lord enough. Hopefully everyone listening right now admits their life and their peace is far from perfect. We're not even close to the good things that God has in store for us. We're not even close. I mean, ultimately, if you want to compare it to how we're going to be in heaven, hopefully you can understand we're not even close. But here's the thing. I mean, we think we're at 90% fear of the Lord, right? Or when we're really at 3%. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We think we're wiser than we are. We think we've got God figured out. He has so much more in store for us but it comes with sanctification. It comes with growing in humility, truly fearing the Lord. So, we can talk ourselves into a lot of things, but we often don't see the areas of our lives where we're deceived, including the areas that we take the Lord for granted or disrespect Him by not truly fearing Him. So this came up on Sunday as a challenge to us. So you say you fear the Lord, huh? Then why, pray tell, are you afraid to give up ungodly TV, movies, music, media? And afraid's the right word. What are we holding on to? If we, if we really believe something is ungodly, what are we holding on to it for? Why? What are we afraid of losing? So many of the, the fears that I've been thinking about lately with our recent lessons, you have to take it to the next step. <laughs> okay, I do have a fear of this thing. Okay, why? What am I ultimately afraid of losing, afraid of giving up? You know, what, what pain do I not want to experience? What perceived pain do I not want to experience? Why are you afraid of giving up fellowship with unbelievers? Why are you afraid to give up things like dating or even flirting? 
Why are you afraid of finding work and spending money to glorify God? Afraid's the right word. Why are you afraid to give more? There's a reason. There's some type of fear in you that you're not going to have enough or you're not going to be able to do what you want or you don't trust God enough to provide. I don't know, but these are fears. These are subtle underlying fears that cause us to uh, be afraid of these things on the board. Why are you afraid of telling family members they're destined for hell? Why are we afraid to speak the truth to people? What's, what, what are we going to lose? Reputation? Um, honor? In their, in their eyes? What are we going to lose? We're afraid of something. Ask yourself, what are the underlying fears that cause these fears? Pastor shared that he and Tammy had a heart-to-heart, and they discovered, and I quote, The truth is that we have been afraid to kick the kingdom of darkness and all of its little tendrils out of our blessed home. And that should be something that gives us all pause. Should it not? I mean, when your own pastor and his wife come to that conclusion, and um, they're leading the way, so to speak, you know, and they realize they've been um, victims of the kingdom of darkness in their own home. That should give us all pause and, you know, something to pray about. A point of their contemplation was a sign in their home that said this, Joshua 24:15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a good or a bad sign to have in your home, depending on how you look at it. Because we never perfectly serve the Lord, so it will always be a challenge if we're humble. But the problem and the conclusion they came to, in my words, is that the living room had become a zombie room, as it does for many of us, where people zone out to the thing in the middle of the room, the TV. It's a zombie room for a lot, a lot of households. Instead of being interactive and caring and loving and even having fun and, you know, joking with one another, we zone out and ignore one another because of the TV controlling a living space. How sick are we, right? We are. This thing, this thing has become something that we uh, stare at. And it's like if you're in the staring contest, you know, with somebody else, you're going to win every time when you're looking at the TV. Because literally, you can zone out and stare at it as though you're a slave to it. Have you ever watched somebody else watch TV? And you see what they look like? They literally look like a zombie. But when you're the one watching it, you don't see that or feel that. Of course not, because you're so enraptured in the program or whatever. So what's happening there? Are we so used to it? Is it so normal to us that it's good, that it's not bad? Is it so normal to us that we no longer give it an honest appraisal as maybe being evil, maybe making us slaves? And if you are a slave to the TV, I'm not saying everybody is, 
But if you're a slave to the TV, aren't you then fellowshipping with the world and its ways? What else comes from the TV? Very little godly stuff, I guess we would say, right? So are you not becoming a friend of the world and an enemy of God if you're fellowshipping that way with the ideas, the images, the projections, the um, philosophies of the world? We're bombarded like hail coming down from the sky with worldly thoughts and impressions. And what are those worldly thoughts and impressions designed to do? Anybody? The D word. Deceive us, right? What else is it designed to do but deceive us? So, a lot to think about and pray about. You know, again, God's not out for us not having fun, which is basically how the flesh takes it. God's out for truly setting us free. Taking off all the chains, not just some of the chains, so you think you're free when you're not. You know, it's almost like having three chains off, but you have one chain left on one leg, and you start to run because you think you're free, and then you get caught. That's kind of like where, where we are on a regular basis. Because we're always holding on to things. We're always holding on to things that cause us slavery. Anyhow, if we truly fear the Lord, the question is, how will we live our lives? That's why the question is, do we truly fear the Lord? Because when we look at how we live our lives, is it submissive? Or is it submissive to the world? So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as we've learned. So what we'll do is we're going to skip Proverbs 1 for now because I believe Pastor is going to come back to it. Um, and I want to give you a couple more examples of the fear of the Lord in Scripture just to share with you. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 18, verse 1. 1 Kings 18, 1. The interesting thing is, as you continue to read your own Bibles... You see this is a common theme, like, all throughout the Bible, the fear of the Lord. It's like everywhere. It's in the mouths of all of his prophets. It's a compliment. It's, it's, it's in fact, the compliment to men of God, that they fear the Lord. So I was doing my own Bible reading. Uh, I'm in Kings right now. And uh, this was the quality of the prophet Obadiah, the quality. Look at 1 Kings 18.1. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now notice this. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. So there we see in verse 3, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And obviously it resulted in him doing some 
good in doing the Lord's work. But what was the cause of that? He feared the Lord greatly. Look at uh, the end of verse 12. We're not going to read this whole passage, but just look at the end of verse 12. 1 Kings 18, 12. It says, Although I, your servant, this is Obadiah speaking, I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Fear of the Lord is a dominating characteristic of the servants of God. So let's end our lesson with a little bit more scripture on this as we behold His holiness. Go to Psalm 111, verse 10. Psalm 111, verse 10. Whatever this thing is called the fear of the Lord, even if you can't like totally describe it or totally get your hands on it, which I'm still struggling with, so to speak. Struggling is not the right word, but I'm still coming to terms with it. Um, whatever it is, whatever it is he's trying to teach us and show us and open our heart to, it's a very, very good thing. And it's one of the keys to growing up and glorifying God. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Now let's go right on into Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth, the generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. In other words, ungodly fear. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. A lot of things coming all together in that psalm. Speaking of the Lord being our confidence, as this psalm ends, do we believe God will handle our enemies in due time? Do we believe that God cannot be defeated and therefore we cannot be defeated? Even though we might be put in the place of defeat? Do we believe God will handle our enemies in due time? Like the psalmist believed? Rather than fearing them, in other words, our enemies, do we simply fear God and uh, have the Lord as our confidence? Period, end of sentence. 
And Solomon's wisdom at the end of his life speaks volumes because Solomon had many victories and also many failures. And in his old age, he wrote this. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14 on the board. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. No one, no one gets out of it. No one's in better favor with God, right? God is not biased. He's not partial. Solomon says that the, the wisest man that ever lived says, I'm not excluded from this, basically is what he says here. The conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to everybody, including me, the richest, wealthiest, most, I don't know, we could keep going. The wisest, for sure. He says this applies to every person. Fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The conclusion, fear God. Keep his commands. That, my friends, is the way to freedom, ultimately, that we have to trust that God is taking us to. We always look at what we're going to lose or what we think we're going to lose. And because of that, we don't go forward in faith. And God's like, you don't understand. I so want to show you what true freedom looks like. But you've got to bow the knee. You have to follow me. You have to fear me rightly. And then let the pieces fall into place. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your spirit. Thank you for guiding us through, for opening our eyes to the things we need to see. We thank you for the light of your truth that shines darkness into the lies in our souls. We ask that you help keep us humble and open so that we can experience the changes you want to make in us. And we can enjoy, enjoy true peace and confidence and happiness as only you can provide it. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, and by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.